What up, my beautiful people? Welcome to the 11th episode of the Smart Alex Show podcast. Appreciate all the love, support, and listens through the first 10 episodes. This episode right here is actually one of my personal favorites with guest Rebecca Pfefferman, otherwise known as Fef. She's an absolute expert in her space. She's worked at the intersection of sports, entertainment, culture for a number of years through public relations, strategy, production, content, et cetera, et cetera. We actually recorded this in November of 2020, so about a year and a half ago. Despite the lengthy time lapse between recording it and uploading it, there's a lot of timeless truths in here, a lot of fun stories, a lot of values and philosophies that she speaks of that are conducive, not only to leading a successful career in whatever field you're in and whatever it is that you do, but also in leading a fulfilling and genuine and awesome life. Um, I hope you guys gain as much value from it and enjoy it half as much even as me and Fef enjoyed recording it for you guys. We talk about a number of things like how she, you know, produced a Beto O'Rourke documentary for HBO, how she started the blue out tradition at University of Michigan, how it was working for her in PR with names like John Krasinski, Casey Affleck, you know, going out there with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, working on cool movies, you know, being in the same room as Clint Eastwood and working with his publicist, things of that nature, how she started South by Sports when she was working at South by Southwest, how she got to work with, you know, the San Antonio Spurs, Bill Simmons, Katie Nolan, Ronda Rousey, Megan Rapino, and the list goes on through that work and through her work with her own consultancy, the FEFCO. Talk a lot more at depth about the sports media industry, where it's going her take on what it is to be a woman in sports. A lot of interesting stuff here, ladies and gents. So I'll leave you guys to it. You guys enjoy. Let's get it. Smart Alex Show, baby! Joining us today, ladies and gentlemen, is someone who has led an incredibly successful and legendary career working at the intersection of sports, entertainment, and culture. Her name is Rebecca Pfefferman, and I first met her in my business and sports media class. And I realized she was a heavy hitter when I tried to look her up on Rate My Professor or, you know, see her LinkedIn. And I realized she popped out on Wikipedia. So obviously, <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, I see what we're working with here. So Rebecca studied at the University of Michigan, worked at Warner Brothers, then worked as a personal publicist for the likes of a few people you may have heard of. Maybe not, such as John Krasinski, Ed Helms, you know, just a couple of A-list celebrities. She also secured major nominations for a couple of other clients. Like, I don't know, one of the Affleck brothers, Casey Affleck. So <laughs> nothing crazy there. You know, after working at South by Southwest in multiple roles, she's worked with a slew of other people, such as the likes of Bill Simmons, Adam Silver, the infamous Ronda Rousey. And now she started her own company, the FEFCO, and continues to do legendary work within, you know, the sports and entertainment space. So we're so happy to have you, Rebecca, and thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. Thank you, Alex. What an intro. I uh, didn't know that I was on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, you to are. Me. Um, you popped out for the Beto O'Rourke documentary. Oh, yes. Yes, I produced a documentary called Running with Beto that was on HBO and 2019. That's right. 
Very awesome. How was it working on, on the, the Beto documentary? It was fantastic. Um, you know, I have been in the entertainment industry in some form for many years, but this is my first time really on the behind the scenes side of it, uh, of creating something. And I got to work with a longtime friend of mine as the director. We spent two years putting together what I think was a really incredible film, catching a very special spark and moment in time. We followed Beto O'Rourke and his Senate campaign um, between November 2017, November 2018. And so when we started filming him, we knew it was an important story, but nobody else knew who he was or thought he had a shot in hell or any of that. And we watched him, you know, skyrocket into super stratosphere while we were rolling. So it was incredible. I I learned a lot um, about the production process and about about documentaries and, I think we, we made something really special. So, and it was particularly special for me because I got to kind of come home with it. We premiered at South by Southwest in March of 2019 and we won the audience award. And so it was very, very special. It was really that cool. Was awesome. Winning the yeah. Award. Very cool. So, so did you get to go, you know, with Beto when he was kind of going through Texas and the different cities and got to see all of that? What was it like just seeing like the people and the movement that he sparked? You know, it was wild. I didn't go on as many field shoots as the rest of our crew. The, the producing that I do is more um, like creative and strategy producing. So it's managing the relationships and the business side of things and making sure we're, all, we're moving all the balls forward at the right time. Um, but I, I did go on a, a handful of them, including Election Day in El Paso, which was just an unbelievable 18-hour day, you know, starting <laughs> at 7 a.m. and watching watching Beto walk from his house to the local um, elementary school, I think it is, where he went to vote. And this, just the massive, by then, the, you know, international attention on him. And there was probably 30, 40 media people from other, from media organizations surrounding him, following him and his family, chasing them, filming them, walking back to their house after he voted at 7 a.m. I mean, and then that was just one tiny portion of the day to ending in that stadium um, the minor league baseball stadium in El Paso mm-hmm. when he gave his concession speech that was so um, emotional and powerful. So uh, it was pretty cool. I mean, it was, I, I think for my, I, I got anxious a lot about crowd crush because I feel like it, there was not always, um, he was not always well protected. I, I used to talk to our crew about this a lot. He, you know, you get pressed against the cars and, you know, yeah. literally need to elbow body out people to, to get, keep safety. safety I imagine it gets, uh, it gets kind of nerve wracking out there. It's crazy. But yeah. that's awesome that yeah. you get to be a part of it. And I actually didn't know that there was, you know, producer roles that, you know, were more on the business side and PR side. Of yeah. Very cool. Um, really quick, I wanted to ask, what's the blue out tradition you started at University of Michigan? Oh, the blue out. So I, you know, I, I grew up, um, my folks went to Michigan. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but my folks went to Michigan and my grandparents went to Michigan. So I grew up rooting and cheering for and following World Wolverine sports, Michigan football. And I had gone into college with a sense of, I really want to work in entertainment PR because I thought it would be exciting and fun and get me out of Albuquerque. And so I had done a lot of internships that were entertainment PR related, PR related. And the summer before my senior year, I was finishing up my internship in New York with 20th Century Fox, and I went in the last day to talk to the big boss and say, you know, thank you for this opportunity, and what more can I be doing so that when I get out of school, I'm hireable? You know, I want to make sure I get the right kind of job. I set myself up for success, and I, at that point, had done a lot of internships, and I 
hustled pretty hard. And she said, look, you've already done everything you need to do to sort of position yourself in this industry, but go do something, just do something, anything that you're passionate about and do that. And I was like, that, what does that mean? You know, what am I supposed to do? Okay. Thank you very much. But it, you know, so I left there kind of feeling like, what, what is that supposed to mean? And I don't really know what that, that wasn't specific enough. And I was really ready to like take an assignment and run with it. For sure. But I got back to, to Michigan, I started the year, and I was in, it was the second week of school, and I was in a class um, with a couple of friends, one of whom had just come back from visiting her boyfriend at Texas A&M, where Texas A&M has this thing called the Maroon Now. And she was telling us about it, and she was like, it was amazing, everybody was wearing Maroon, it was so powerful, all these things, and we said, why don't we do anything like that here? This is the biggest stadium in the country, one of the most storied fan bases in college football history, winningest program of all time. What, what are we doing wrong here? And so the three of us decided we were going to do it for Michigan. And just like that, snap into action. Um, and in, I think, four, four to five weeks, the game, we decided to do it for the, the, the biggest home game of the year, which that year was Michigan State, not Ohio State. It was, um, and we pulled together um, this movement around, we created the, the blue out, sort of, you know, where it's go blue, you know, go blue beat MSU. We, we had, I had a friend who was a graphic design student. He designed a logo. I wrote a press release. We um, knew somebody who knew the football coach and was able to, were able to get a quote from him. And then started this groundswell of movement. We started working with the athletic department. They supported us. We started connecting with the alumni association. They were helping us put the word out. I was putting on my PR hat and um, doing interviews with the Detroit News and, and all of these places. And we produced a t-shirt. And we were physically standing on street corners. We got volunteers to sell these t-shirts. We sold 4,000 t-shirts in like two weeks on the corners of campus and took, you know, planning to use that money towards the next blue out. So, um, and it, we ended up winning the game and it was a really just incredible experience. And so that, you know, you looked around the stadium, we, we went with blue instead of maize because we sort of decided it was going to be cold. More people were likely to have a blue jacket than a yellow one. It just works. It makes yeah, so we, we we did that, and then the athletic department saw what a massive success it was and that there was an opportunity for that, and so then they decided to create a season t-shirt for the students that sold the season ticket packages, and I was on there, and I, I got invited to advise and sort of be on a committee with them the following semester, my last semester of college, to help shape what that would look like for the future of Michigan students. So this is the tradition that still goes today. Every year, the students can buy a, a um, a unique season ticket um, t-shirt and uh, it's different every year and they think they I think they alternate I think they do blue out sometimes I think they do maze outs but but yeah I started that in 20 uh, 2002 awesome the so coolest thing I've ever done frankly 18 years so all my friends over at Michigan and all you Wolverines over there you know who you have to thank Rebecca she's the one that started the tradition that's still going strong so very awesome to have done that you know in your undergrad career cool yeah, well, you know, I tell you what, I mean, I told that story about my internship because really what ended up happening was that became this thing I was so passionate about. And I, you know, I went to the mat for it and I was taking five classes and I was working at a restaurant and I was doing this doing it all. and I, and I, and it was the most incredible experience. We made so much happen with it. And at the end of it, I had made this portfolio of all the press clippings and all the photos and everything about it. And I had it on my resume. And when I went out for my interviews, I had all these internships in entertainment and entertainment PR and every single person who interviewed me said, what's the blue out? Talk to me about that. 
And so I got to express something that I was passionate about, show that I have passion so that I have follow through, so that I have, you know, take initiative and I'm a self-starter and I know how to work hard and I know how to make things happen. So by focusing on something that was topically really interesting to me and exciting to me, and I was very passionate, deeply passionate about Michigan football, I was able to then create a work experience that made me more hireable, that was more unique and set me apart, even though that even though it wasn't about entertainment or entertainment PR. So after the fact, I was able to look back on it and go, oh, I know what she meant now. I know what she meant. Absolutely. And I think you made some good points there. Like for anyone listening that wants to get into the space, you know, like showing that your passion, initiative, and you can be a self-starter and you mm-hmm. know, using that stuff to set yourself apart. I think that's huge. So yeah, thank yeah. You for that. that's, that's an awesome story. And it's cool to see it. Like when you see it on TV, you see the games and you know, everyone's in blue out to think that you're the one behind that. What do you, what do you think? Like, yeah. you game on TV, or you go back over to Michigan and maybe attend a game. Like, what do you think when you see that? Like, what's the feeling? Oh, just immense pride and joy. I mean, I think, you know, to leave any kind of legacy anywhere is exciting. And to leave something that significant. And, you know, my name will be lost to the annals of history, but that tradition will continue. And that is a big deal to me. And, um... So yeah, it just it just feels great. I'm I'm incredibly proud of it. I, again, it wasn't like an original idea, but no one had done it there before, so we ran with it, I mean, made it happen. You made it your own, made it your own yeah. and you know, right. those Aggies, we don't like them over there. So the the blue out's definitely better than the maroon out. They got there. You go. There you go. <laughs> um, I definitely am very curious about you know the PR side of things, and mm-hmm. um, kind of want to ask you about what that's like within the sports and entertainment industry. We'll kind of get to that in a minute, but I was going to ask you, you know, next, like, what, what was it like at Warner Brothers and then uh, working as a personal publicist, you know, with all these big names in entertainment afterward? Well, I mean, it was very, uh, so much of it was very exciting. You know, I, I got out of college, I moved to Los Angeles and um, immediately started working at a movie studio and working on um, some really big films like uh, Matrix Revolutions. I think it's the third one. That's the one that I worked on. Um, Ocean's Eleven, um, uh, Matchstick Men. Maybe it was Ocean's Twelve. I don't know. We had we had a lot of big movies, and I got to work on them, and and it was really exciting. You know, I'm coming from a small town basically, and and this is all I've wanted to do is be in this industry and work in capacity. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so a lot of the work that I did when I worked at the studio was, I mean, I was an assistant, so I was just, you know, I was hustling as hard as I could and, um, and, uh, you know, acting, asking everybody I met, like, what more could I do? I was volunteering for everything. Um, You know, I had a really special experience where we, um, we were working on Mystic River, which was a film that Clint Eastwood directed that starred Sean Penn and um, Tim Robbins and a bunch of people. And Clint Eastwood had a publicist who was kind of an old school guy who took a liking to me and basically always asked for me to be the person from the studio to help them out, I think. So I just started showing up. I would go to every award show with him and I got to, you know, um, you know, escort him down these press lines, make sure he had everything he needed. And this is really unusual for somebody at my experience level. But, you know, I took it really you know, seriously. And um, at the end of this whole award season, you know, Clint, Mystic River won a lot of awards and was nominated for a lot of awards. And I went, I was invited to join the cast for a dinner. And I was like, I'm not allowed to, I can possibly. And I, and, and I called my boss and she was like, go to dinner, it's fine. And I, so it had this really special experience, you know, out the gate. And, and a lot of that came from the fact that I just 
you know, I raised my hand when somebody said, will you work on the weekend? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. And then I got to meet Marco, who was Clint's publicist at the time, and that was that. And then, you know, the thing about the studio that was so cool was that it was a fairly comfortable, stable job, but it, it, also, it also was very corporate. And so there was no real mechanism for advancement or quick advancement because it was sort of structured in a way of, well, you're an assistant and then you're a junior publicist and then you're a senior publicist and then you're a director. So, and unless the people in those jobs above you were going somewhere, the opportunities weren't coming. You just had to sit and wait. And I was too hungry to sit and wait. And I, and I felt like I pretty much figured out the job pretty quickly. And I, um, so much that I was taking on new stuff to keep myself challenged. And um, an opportunity came up, you know, with a personal PR firm. So instead of doing PR for the movies, um, doing PR for the actors or the talent. And I was not really particularly interested in that side of things, but I really liked this girl who was an assistant there and we'd worked together on one of the movies we had that her act, that her client was in. And she said, just send me your resume and apply. So, okay, fine. And then I got offered the job. I got offered an interview. I went into the interview and got it for the second interview. And then I got offered the job and I was like, oh shoot, now I have to make a decision. And I ultimately I decided, you know, I'd been at Warner Brothers a little over a year, almost a year and a half. And I realized like, you know, I may not love this next job, but what I will, if I could do it for a year. I'll learn a lot more. I'll learn a different set of the business. I'll make new relationships. You know, I'll develop different skill sets. And the worst that happens is I hate it. And I get another studio job in a year. Right. And I had to take a little pay cut, but it was, you know, 22. Like what, it, what is my exactly. cost of living really? So I did that and I went over to this agency called IDPR, which was at the time and is still one of the sort of prim, premier high caliber um, talent PR agencies in, in, in Hollywood. And I had a tremendous experience. They really trained me so well. I learned so much about um, how to handle relationships, how to handle talent, you know, how to really make sure that you have the right priorities in terms of building blocks of of utilizing PR to help your client succeed in work. It's not about, it was not about making people famous. It was about using the right kind of press at the right time to help them get the kind of work that they wanted. Sure. And when you have that philosophy about it, and that was how I was trained, it really makes it um, a much more interesting proposition. And I loved the, I love the long-term nature of it. The fact that you're in a personal relationship with somebody and you are looking at the scope of their career and you're going, here's where you are now. Where do you want to get to? And then, you know, they, they have to go out and their agents and managers help get them the work. And then once they get the work, we go, okay, we're building your relationship with Vanity Fair, for example. So John Krasinski is one of my clients. I met him and started working with him in the beginning of the second season of The Office. So, you know, the show's starting to take off. Uh -huh. People kind of see him on the street and go like, oh, hey, you're that guy, you know. Um, but he really wasn't a big star or anything at that point. And he was doing small kind of like rom-coms and things, you know, he did a film with Mandy Moore called License to Wed, things like that. And, you know, I started out by trying to make sure that the editors at Vanity Fair knew who he was, understood why he was different, were paying attention to what he was doing. You know, they're not going to cover John Krasinski for License to Wed, but then he got a film called Leatherheads where he was starring that George Clooney directed. And then, then because I've been doing this long-term seeding the, seeding the play work, they were ready to feature him at that time in a bigger way. And so it's sort of like a layering and building block process so that then when John's in Vanity Fair, then he's getting seen by different kinds of directors who may hire him for different kinds of work, like Sam Mendes, who hired him for Away We Go. So 
you know, the, the progression was really exciting to me. Um, it also was a role that they gave me very, very um, 360 access and perspective on the entire industry. And that's because you're working with directly with talent, directly with agents and managers and other representatives, directly with the media, directly with the public, directly with studios and networks, directly with producers, writers, creators, directors. So the whole gamut of how the industry and the sausage is made and how everything works and how everybody fits together, you have a, a sort of nexus point to have a perspective on. So I love that part of it. Yeah, so I got to do that for a while. It was pretty cool. That, that's incredible, and it's just incredible getting being able to see the amount of impact you have on someone's career behind the scenes, you know, from taking that long-term approach and, you know, being that nexus and, and you know, building these longer-term relationships with all these, you know, different points of contact. That's incredible. So what was it like working directly with these personalities, you know? Were there any, were there ever any like ego issues or just, you know, anything that's, uh, you know, typical of dealing with people that are, you know, celebrities? You know, I, I have to say I had really wonderful clients who, you know, I think that job can be a lot worse on the scale of, of how that can go. I had really excellent clients who were very talented and by and large, great people. Um, the nature of the job, though, is that you are essentially, you know, 100% available and oriented around other people before yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the nature of the financial structure of that job is that you are, con you are working on 15 to 20 people at once, always. Mm -hmm. And it never slows, it's like busy, 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 a little busier, busy again. Like it never slows down and you never have a break and you, mm -hmm. you know, you spend all your nights and weekends. Um, kind of tethered to a person and, and a lot of times you're there you're at a junket or you're at a photo shoot or you're traveling and you're there and you're present but you're not actively doing anything in the, in the, some of those moments you know if something goes wrong you're there and you figure it out but it, it, it's even if they don't need it it's, it's it can sometimes be a, a bit of like an adult babysitting circumstance and it's not that the it's not that the actors or the talent are are bad people to do that for. It's just a way for me. It was more about my own time and energy and 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 desire to, you know, have a little more broader focus in life, which is ultimately why I left that career behind. Gotcha. Um, but I also get to do some really incredible things. I got to travel the world. I, um, you know, I I went. I was actually just. Um, listening to Conan O'Brien's podcast, which I really love, yeah. makes me laugh a lot. And he had John Leguizamo on. And John was my client for like four years. And I just loved him. He was such a hard worker. He was such a positive attitude all the time. He was wild. He always had made me laugh, was always going, going, going. <laughs> and he was in, when Ice Age 3 came out, the studio had this idea for this PR stunt, really, which was to have John judge a ice sculpture com competition um, that was in Fairbanks, Alaska in March. And so, you know, John was like, I'm game. That sounds good. So we flew up a tiny plane up to Alaska. They're like, we'll fly you private. But it was like a very tiny private plane. And it was John's family and me and a couple other people. We flew up to Alaska, Fairbanks, Alaska, which is a very tiny town, yeah. negative 45 degrees. We have no, we're not prepared yeah, at all. The locals met us. They, they let us borrow their ski suits and full length fur coats because we were like, we would have died. Um, I mean, I got to have crazy, crazy experiences like that. So, 
Um, I met a lot of wonderful people and, but, but yeah, it's an interesting job being around talent. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome that, you know, the clients you had, you know, that they were awesome people and, and interesting people and it kept it fun because I feel like, you know, it's a job that I'd imagine has little work-life balance. And like you said, you know, you're very attached to uh, the people you're working with and just there in case anything goes wrong, right? Not necessarily having yeah. to do anything, but just in case. Um, no, that's that's so awesome, actually. My, uh, are you familiar with Professor Dalthorpe in uh, Moody? He, no. He's also a producer. He's done a couple sports documentaries, but he was telling me that uh, one of his buddies used to work as a writer with Conan for the Simpsons, like way back. In the oh, day. cool. Conan used to write before, you know, he, he's doing all this stuff. Yeah. Now. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, awesome stuff. So it was John, the fun, John Krasinski, was he the, like the funnest person you worked with or, or who was the funniest or, and what, like, if there's a story that sticks out to you, what was the funnest or funniest story or wildest story of your time, you know, working in the industry? God, you know, I worked with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She was pretty funny. Um, I had great clients. I had very funny clients. I had a lot of really talented, funny people, um, who were always making me laugh. And, uh, I don't know, wow, the story, uh, you know, it's so funny all these years pass by and I forget, <laughs> um, you know, I, you know, I, when I worked with Casey Affleck, he was in a film called the assassination of Jesse James by the Keller Robert That's right. Ford, also starring Brad Pitt. And so we traveled the world with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie at the time. And like, there was, that was wild. That was just watching the world follow them was pretty wild. Um, we were in Venice at the Venice Film Festival and we were walking from the press conference inside to something outside. And, you know, so Brad and his people and Casey and me and, and, and other people related, you know, studio people and whatever. And this woman kind of charged the group to like lunge at Brad to give him a hug. And we all just kind of got tumbled. And it was like big news because this person kind of like, she wasn't trying to attack him, but she was, you know, inappropriate. Wow. It was not, it was not good. It was a security breach. Um, so that was kind of wild. That was kind of a wild day. What? So did you get to interact? Like, obviously you interacted a lot with Casey, but did you get to interact with like Ben, his brother? And, and what are they like? What's their relationship <laughs> You know, I did get to interact quite a bit with Ben because at the same time Casey was um, in a film, that film, Jesse James, he was in Gone Baby Gone, which Ben directed. I, I saw Gone Baby so Gone we, months ago. Intense, intense, deep movie. Great, great, great film. Great. And yeah, Casey was excellent in it. Um, and so we also traveled together quite a bit to promote that film. So I, they're very, very funny people. Ben Affleck is probably one of the funniest people I've ever met. <laughs> Yeah, really. that's, that's and they have you know a real brother dynamic of you know looking at each other. I bet what what a life it must be you know as brothers to to make it to that level of success and you know being it together. That's awesome. And yeah, Brad, you yeah. Get back with Brad and and Angelina Jolie by any chance? Barely, barely. From what you saw, I was in, I was in, I was in many rooms with them, but yeah. I, I did not interact with them really. And are they are they very different behind the scenes from what's portrayed you know to the public to the media or how are they behind yeah. the scenes you know? Not to my experience. I mean, I wouldn't, I did, like I said, I saw them from more from afar or across, you know, across a room yeah. with, even though the room only had 10 people in it and I was one of them, but it wasn't like I was um, conversing with them. Gotcha. For sure. For sure. Wow. That seems like an incredible experience. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Um, sure. So I haven't thought about these stories in years. <laughs> it's sort of funny to 
Yeah, it's all, it's all coming back to you. <laughs> um, so moving on, right? So you went and started working for South by Southwest. What was it like in your different roles with South by Southwest? And more specifically, like, what was it like, you know, with, at South by Sports? Like, what was it like working with, you know, uh, putting together the panels and working with uh, Adam Silver and the likes of Bill Simmons or Ronda Rousey? Sure. Well, so, so how I got to South by was I left LA and I moved to Austin. Um, and I did that because I wanted to have a more normal life and have that work-life balance that you mentioned and, and just sort of be able to figure out more about myself than, you know, that I was just this publicist person. Um, because I had been so lucky and so fortunate in many ways to be that focused very young so that I was able to just have a very accelerated trajectory to success once I got into the working world. And so in, in many ways, you know, I was a few years ahead of most of my peers and, and, you know, had a lot of really great opportunities, but that also meant that I did not focus any time on developing myself as a person, mm-hmm. um, in my twenties. And so I had sort of the sense of that and I decided to move to Austin to pursue that because it seemed important. I didn't think that it was going to end well for me if I just stayed on this career hundred percent of my life, um, lane. So and I needed the time and space to do that. So I, I thought I would leave LA and I would leave entertainment behind. And I, and, and I ended up very fortunately landing at South by Southwest when I moved here, which at the time, so I moved here in 2008, fall of 2008. Um, so South by in general was much smaller. The film part in particular was very small and not very well, well known. Um, and, and they asked me to help them grow it. Um, and help build their profile and to a more national brand. And then, and then I started there um, and, and just sort of as a, a way to get it into the city a little bit and um, ended up spending the next five years running the PR for the film festival and programming. So, so that means like helping select the films and speakers, partially because I had all these relationships in Hollywood and I understood how to speak the language and and how to make the experience valuable and enjoyable enough for the talent and the studios that they would come back and want to do bigger and, 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 and bolder things every year. Um, and then bring in the national media attention. So I, and at the same time, I, I found life and hobbies and um, I did build a work life balance into my life. And that was really wonderful. Awesome. So I did that for about five years. I did that from 2009 um, with my first festival through the 2014 festival. But, but around um, sometime in 2013, I started getting kind of bored, frankly. I did not want to do PR anymore, over PR. Um, I liked film, but it was not my passion. Okay. And, you know, I felt like I, I felt my own work ethic slipping because I just was disinterested in the things that I was doing. And, and to some extent, I had built this thing and it worked. And I could keep tinkering with it and making it a little better and a little better every year. That's the advantage of an event. But, um, it just was not firing me up. So um, what I realized at the time was that I was a lot more passionate about sports. And so I thought, um, wow, like how do I start working in sports, but stay in Austin, not make a lateral move, not do any PR anymore, um, probably not work in events because I don't really love <laughs> working in events. And I looked around the room and it was like, there's no, that's not a thing that doesn't exist. I can't completely change my career and change industries um, in one leap. But um, simultaneously, a guy named Steve Sable passed away. Do you know who that is? No, ma'am, I don't. 
So he, uh, he was the pioneer behind NFL films and sort of the, the, the creative visionary who, who led to things, style of sports, sports filmmaking that really brought in these kind of heroes and triumph and tragedy. And, you know, you've probably seen iconic shots of a football, like knuckle, knuckles tightening on the line and yeah. cold breath coming out in slow-mo. And um, that, that was, that was uh, NFL films with Steve Sable. And he passed away in fall of 2013 and I thought oh my gosh you know I love Hard Knocks one of my favorite shows this is the most incredible style of filmmaking and you know we got to do a panel on this for the film festival and so I went out and programmed that just cold called people to come at the time I I called um, Connor Shell who at the time was with ESPN Films who Mm -hmm. is currently the head of content at ESPN and is going to be leaving at the end of the year but um but back then was head of films. And then um, a guy named Ross Greenberg, who started, who was at HBO Sports when he, and made Hard Knocks for them. Um, and a guy from NFL Films called Ken Rogers. Anyway, I put this panel together. It was like the most exciting thing I did that entire year. And it was very telling to me. And after that, it became clear that there was opportunity at South by Southwest to do more sports programming. And because South by Southwest had such a, um, uh, standing in both the technology and the cultural landscapes, I was able to to design the concept of doing um, a mini sports conference as part of South by Southwest. So South by Sports is my baby that I came up with. So I got them to agree to do this South by Sports thing, which was going to be three days of panels and sport-related films. So it would be part of both interactive and film and open to people from both. Um, and then it was kind of off the races. So the programming was the idea of t- looking at the future of sport from the South by perspective of culture and technology. What that really meant is that I had um, essentially carte blanche opportunity to create any programming that I was interested in because it could be any sport at any level. And I went out um, sort of a novice in the sports industry, but with the South by Southwest brand and infrastructure and audience and an opportunity behind me and, and got to knock on the front door of the very high level of the sports industry across all the sports. Um, and that was how that all got started. So Bill Simmons, um, for example, is somebody who was ESPN wanted him to speak for South by Southwest Interactive. And I knew his publicist. Um, who I'd gone way back with to all my Warner Brothers days, who I had remained friends with and had, had, had maintained a relationship with, a guy named Lewis Kay. And I called him and I said, Lewis, and he knew I was interested in sports stuff. I said, Lewis, I'm starting a sports thing at South by Southwest. It's called South by Sports. If we announce it with Bill's name attached, it's game over. It begins. Like that sets us, immediately validates us. And it, it's still going to be part of interactive. It's a subset, but it will just be branded South by Sports. And, you know, he got ESPN and, and Bill on board to agree to that. So then we put out, you know, an announcement that was in the New York Times with Bill Simmons and South by Southwest and South by Sports. And, um, and that really did it. That immediately kind of gave us a legitimacy in the sports industry, um, which is how we then had speakers like Adam Silver and Ronda Rousey and, um, Odell Beckham Jr. and Megan Rapino and uh, all kinds of folks um, over the next few years as um, I built so, that. So without you, there is no South by Sports, basically. True. Yeah. Very awesome. Well, thank you for putting that together. I was really <laughs> looking forward to going this past March. And I think I yeah. told you about it 
Um, but then, you know, with the COVID situation, so hopefully, you know, things are able to happen, you know, this coming year and it sounds incredible yeah. and I'd, I'd love to attend. I mean, like, it's that's yeah. amazing that you put that together and you can pull so much talent and so many cutting edge conversations within the same place. So that's just, incredible. it was a blast. Yeah. I mean, again, it was something I was passionate about, so I gunned for it, you know, yeah, it's just, it's sure. just a pretty strong through line for me. So, if I'm interested in it, I'm going to make it happen. Yeah, no, that's, that's powerful. So do you think it was a, a product of you feeling no longer challenged in your previous role with, with South by and what, looking for something new to, to conquer? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I don't know that I had any, I didn't intend to create a new role at South by, but it ended up being the way to do it. And so, you know, while I kept my job essentially and continued working with the same company, I totally changed my industry and what I was doing because I was producing and, you know, doing all the business development and curating all the content and managing a team and, and pulling together this different kind of vision um, and not doing PR and not doing film. So I, I really did a, a pivot there. And, and what, what's Ronda Rousey or Megan Rapinoe, you know, some of the, the biggest um, female athlete names that we've seen, you know, in the past decade, what are they like? And what was it like working for them amidst, you know, this, this movement within women's athletics, you know, the U.S. women's national team, the, the success they've had in the past few years, and Ronda, the success she had in the past decade, like, what was it like securing names like that for South by Sports? And oh, it was incredibly exciting. I mean, I was very proud of it. And, and, and it really also, again, just, you know, when we got names like that, it really continued to cement our legitimacy within the industry. Um, and they were fascinating to listen to. One of the disadvantages to running an event like that is that you really don't get to participate in the event. Yeah. So I, I would get to sort of quickly say hello, watch a little bit, and then I had to dash off to the next thing. Um, but, you know, I, I know that, um, I mean, Megan was there in 2015. So pre, it was pre-World Cup, pre-Women's World Cup that year. Um, so she was, she was already like a fascinating character and a, a, an excellent player, but she was not the worldwide superstar that she is today. Sure. Um, but it, it was very Carly, fortunate to have her. Carly, right? Carly Lloyd at the time was still captain. And yeah, it was like Abby Wambach was really the superstar uh, of the 2015, yeah. Abby, Carly, um, Hope Solo was still on the team, yeah, Alex Morgan. For sure, mm -hmm. for sure. Man, that was just Sydney LaRue. Dominant team. Um, yeah. That is awesome. So yeah. to kind of take it back, I think you said some really important stuff in terms of like um, work-life balance, right? And you felt like mm -hmm. in your 20s you were working so hard that you had like learned so much for your career and set yourself up for, for you know, a great career in the industry, but mm -hmm. you feel like you hadn't uh, worked on yourself personally enough. Do you think that happens to a lot of people, you know, on the grind when they're young? And, and do you think it's something that needs to be addressed more? Like, you know, yeah, it's, it's great to focus on your career, but also like the benefits of really discovering yourself personally. And what was yes. that journey kind of like? In a word, in a word, yes, very much so. I think everybody should try to prioritize it. And I don't think it's just a young people thing. I think it is a, it's a bad habit that we have um, culturally. And, um, you know, on the one hand, I'm very grateful that I had the, you know, grind and hustle that I did when I was young and, and the focus so that I was able to, and I didn't mind it. I loved, I loved what I was doing. So it made it worthwhile. And all of that helped set me apart and move me up and, and provide me opportunity, open, open doors for me I might not have had otherwise. 
But I think there's a way to work that hard and hustle and do go above and beyond and, um, and set yourself apart while at the same time setting boundaries and making sure that you um, know how to like listen to yourself and take the carve space for the time that you need to recharge or have a hobby or connect with family. Um, because I just think, you know, that having doing things that are not related to your work um, I think we can get on a hamster wheel of just the perpetual, um, you know, you're doing work to do more work, or you're doing socializing to help your work, or you only have your work to talk about. And I think that makes us a pretty boring and exhausting society, frankly. Um, you know, one thing I've worked very hard over the last oh, 10, 15 years to do is um, when I meet people, when I interact with people, I don't ask them first about what they do for a living. I try to get, to, I try to have interactions with people that are not about work at all. Um, and that forces me to have to think about things that are not about work and, and express myself personally in and in a different way and can help you connect. And it helps um, ground and remind you that like, unless you're actually curing cancer, you're not curing cancer. You know, like what I did in, in personal PR, for example, you know, some of my highest stress moments were about whether or not I got the, the first choice hair and makeup on hold for an award show, which is like so dumb, but it really matters to the client and to the experience. But like, let's, let's keep things in perspective. And I think, I think having other interests or relationships outside of your work, I think really does help provide um, a better, better sense of perspective and, and to keep that balance for sure no those are some beautiful points and it's beautiful you know that you uh you have that perspective and and you can provide it to young people like myself about to break in and, and others so yeah i think like you said you know i think it's uh being able to talk about things outside of work or outside of career it does allow opportunity you know for a lot more like genuine connection and uh mm -hmm. intentional conversation that you wouldn't otherwise have, you know? So I think that was, that was very well said and uh, appreciate yeah. perspective. Like you said, perspective is the biggest thing. Um, it takes time. I will say the other thing with uh, that really is that, you know, my, the, the one constant in my career and my ability to accomplish whatever it is that I'm doing, whether it was PR or, you know, running a conference or producing a film or whatever the hell it is I do now, teaching, is really being able to develop and maintain relationships in an authentic, genuine, non-transactional way. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you can't have a relationship with somebody where you need something from them and they need something from you and you can help each other. But if that's the sole purpose or agenda of how you interact with people, those, la those relationships aren't going to last. And then what will happen is when you're no longer useful to that person, they have nothing to retain for you. Exactly. So, you know, as somebody who's changed jobs and careers multiple times, and, I, and, and often, you know, I go from like a big name company to having to do something that maybe isn't as immediately eye-catching. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's one thing to make a phone call on behalf of John Krasinski. It's another thing to make a phone call on behalf of me. Mm -hmm. um, and whether somebody is willing to pick up and have that interaction with me, um, has a lot to do with how I interact with them unrelated to the work that we do. Absolutely. So that when, so that I am not just Rebecca from South by Southwest, I'm Rebecca. And then they're like, and people say, Oh, you're not a South by Southwest anymore. What are you doing now? Or well, how have you been? And it's not just, Oh, you, you can't help me at South by anymore. So I don't need you anymore. Um, 
So that's, that's the other thing I always try to, to advise people is to really make sure that when they're developing relationships, they're doing it in a way that is about the relationship and not about whatever the transaction may or may not be and letting those things develop more organically. I totally agree. Keeping it authentic and organic is, is a big thing for me, right? Like in, in doing this. And that, that's always my goal with, with networking or, or meeting other people is just trying to do it genuinely and for the right reasons, like not trying to mm -hmm. get anything out of it transactionally, right? right? And that's why I appreciate you taking the time to, to hop on this podcast with me because in, in all honesty, like there's, there's nothing, you know, coming out of this per se per, for you, but you're helping me out and this is just a genuine conversation we're having so that, you know, others might be able to take value from it, right? And I think like, at least like in the business school at UT, there's a, there's a huge problem with that. Like around the culture is like everything's transactional. Everyone you meet uh, trying to get, you know, jobs in like the big four and accounting or consulting or investment. It's, it's extremely transactional. It's like a lot of extrinsically motivating toxic mm -hmm. stuff going on. And I was talking with a buddy about it the other day and it's just like, doing things genuinely meeting people and having genuine relationships in the long term it's it's going to work out a lot better for you because when there's nothing transactional about it anymore those relationships are what's going to hold and those bonds mm -hmm. are what's going to pay off in that network so that's why i just try to keep it genuine and and that's kind of my motto for doing things and maybe in the short term it doesn't you know go as well but i think in the long term it's uh, it's better for your brand it's better for for your career and your yeah. life maybe it does though maybe it does go as well in the short term yeah. i mean yeah. don't you can't assume it doesn't i think that's i'm glad you're thinking in that way um i you know i think there's a lot of transactional people out there there's a lot of transactional industries out there and so you know i have never fallen mm -hmm. into those camps but um i also feel like there's that that brings a lot of pressure to kind of conform and if you're not doing those things and you're not doing, then what are you doing? Um, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying, whatever, you know, there's so many yeah. business isms that are actually very stupid um, and useless because you don't have to do that. You don't have to perpetually be on some, you know, linear upswing. You know, you got to, this goes back to why, you know, I originally left LA and, and one of the things I've learned over the years is paying attention to myself. What do I actually want and need? You know, I started my own company four and a half years ago, and I had a lot of people come to me and say, okay, so what's your five-year plan? You know, are you going to build an agency? You should, be, you should be hiring other people. You can be taking on. And I said, I don't want to do that. You may want to do that. You may think that's what you need to do if you start a business. I don't want to. I'm comfortable with it. And that has worked for me, you know? And, but it's hard when a lot of other people are externally trying to say to you, it's got to be this way. This is the right path. I will be the first person to tell you there is no correct path. There is only your path. There is only what you need in the moment that you need it. You make a decision based on that. That's going to take you the next step. And when you're in that next step, then you reevaluate again and you keep, and that's how you take one step after the other, after the other, and you keep ending up places that you need to be, whether or not you meant to go there or in the first place is kind of irrelevant. So, um, my, I have never, <laughs> there's the, the only thing in my career that I did on purpose um, was working in entertainment PR and everything since then has been an evolution of me figuring out what matters to me as a person and, and the life I want to live. Yeah, that's awesome that you've taken that approach. And, and honestly, I've, I've talked to a few people that are kind of similar in it that, that they just, you know, take it one step at a time like that based on, you know, their goals in the moment and not what mm -hmm. other people think they should do. And it, it always seems to work out. So that's awesome. Um, 
moving to the FEFCO, what, what do you, what do you do at the FEFCO and, and what have you learned, you know, working at the FEFCO yeah. that you wish you knew? Well, uh, I don't know. I, I think, I think I wish I knew earlier was that it's okay to not grind so hard all the time. Okay. It's okay to take a break. Yeah. It's okay to have a life. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's okay to not work with people you don't like or for people you don't like, you know, that there are questions you can ask when you do work of how set up for success you'll actually be, decision-making power, who your direct, you know, boss will be. There's a lot about that that really impacts your day-to-day life and, and mental health and well-being that has nothing to do with what you do on a day-to-day basis task-wise um, in a job. And so I have learned um, to be smarter about spotting situations that I won't thrive in and not taking them on. It's not worth it. Um, but but what I do, yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm gonna cut you off. Oh no, you're good. I, I just think that's a, that's a huge um, trait, right? Being able to, like I, I've heard, you know, it's more important being able to say no than being able to say yes, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, at least for me, I still have to do a better job at identifying, you know, when I'm taking on too much or when I might not thrive in a certain situation, and be able to just say no. You know, it's hard mm-hmm. when you're you're young and ambitious to want to take everything on but some things just aren't for you, you well, know? that and you're not gonna know until you do them a lot of the time and 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 you know I'm speaking now with 20 plus years of work experience under my belt so I have the, the luxury of hindsight and time and sure. and having worked to a point where I can set a, set some different standards for myself than somebody you know who's just getting out of college so you know take it with a grain of salt but um what I do at the FEFCO really has boiled down to, you know, taking my pretty unique blend of background and expertise across sports, entertainment, talent, business, media, tech, events, marketing, all of that, that package of all those, those, those um, areas. And then applying that in different situations, um, you know, to the people who need the help. So, basically being like high level strategy and advising um, and in, in areas of content or business development, um, media strategy, things like that. And then um, utilizing my relationships and, and, and facilitating connections that make sense to help my clients achieve whatever goals they're trying to achieve. So it's not as narrow as to say like I consult on, you know, live events. I can. That's something I know. I can help you figure it out more. It's just like I'm a brain in contact for hire to help people figure out what it is that they really need and then help them stay the course to to do it themselves. Um, And then I also produce. So I produce that documentary. I have produced um, a couple of TV shows and I'm in the process right now of developing a uh, podcast series. So those are the kind of two things I do. Awesome. What do you have in mind for for the podcast? Well, you'll have to wait and see. But well, it's a sports, a sports docu-series, and I okay. think it's going to be really Very cool. awesome. Well, well, y'all heard it yeah. here first. We'll be waiting yeah. for it. Um, yeah. I was going to ask, so, like, what's it like? You know, I know you've done some work with, like, Katie Nolan or, like, mm-hmm. what he's got going on at the ringer. What's that like? Well, I think they're two people who have proved that they're very um, unique in, in appealing in their voices. And, um, you know, Katie is at a different point in her career than Bill, but, but um, you know, she's an exceptional talent. I've been around talent a long time, as, as you know, and, and she has the, an ability to be so fast and on her feet in how she thinks about 
what's what she's doing and what the content will be. And she's sort of a producer while she's a host at the same time, which is a very rare skill. Um, and she's so funny and she's so creatively uh, unique. And so it's just been fun to watch her brain work. I mean, she's often the smartest person in any room. And that includes when I'm in the room with her. She's just, she's just got it. Wow, wow. Yeah, no, I've, I've watched the Katie Nolan show. Big fan of Katie Nolan. And um, I'm friends with someone who used to work on her production team, you know, in the uh, Seaport office in New York City. His name. Oh, yeah. Who's uh, that? RJ Sadev. He, yeah, I know RJ. Yeah, RJ. Yeah, yeah, you know RJ. That's right. I forgot. I forgot. He did tell me that that you knew each other. Yeah, RJ's cool and and he's moved on, but um he's yeah, at Colbert he, now, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, he loves it. He says it's a totally different vibe going I'm on. Sure. There. It's like, you I'm know, sure it's like it a small production team of like I forget how many he said it was for Katie was it like between 5 and 10, right? Yeah. Yeah, he said now there's like more than 50 people you know working directly on one show and it's just totally different he says it's extremely hectic but he loves it he loves That's all the guys going on on over there but uh yeah i've gotta i've gotta talk with him and get him to come on here as well but um yeah you have to tell him i say hi i thought he was always thought he was very funny will. i definitely will he's he's awesome um but yeah he said he really enjoyed the katie nolan show and that he just didn't know about um like ESPN's commitment to it going forward and all that good stuff, right. which, which right. makes me sad because it's like, I think ESPN should focus on that young demographic. And I feel like Katie's like the perfect person to, you know, utilize to kind of reach that new crowd, you know, the feminine, um, you know, sports fandom um, and just youth. And they have her on ESPN plus, which is cool because a lot of the youth is going to go there over the top. Right. But it's like, I don't know. I just think they could have, could have used the show differently in in the past but that's just my opinion i guess but uh yeah i tend to agree espn's a complicated company very much so very much so i mean i interned there and saw you know how um why things might move slower than in other companies mm -hmm. because it's just mm -hmm. so bureaucratic because it's massive and you have all, all the other stakeholders from disney and all the other you know assets they own so it's like you got to go through synergy you got to get it approved here there and the other and it's like well, the ringer's not going to do that. Barstool's not going to do that. Um, Fox probably isn't even going to do that. And they're just going to beat you to the punch while you're still trying to get approval. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's very interesting. I don't know. What do you think about the whole space, like in the trajectory, trajectory of things, especially like in the new digital world we're in? Where do you think things are headed with all these power players? The media space? Yeah, yeah. Like just like Barstool or the ringer, you know, they recently got acquired by Spotify. Like just stuff's shaking up you know there's new players in the game uh, i think it's going to continue to happen I, I think i don't think i think we are in a culture that mm -hmm. that wants to have personality and niche appeal to the things that we consume we want to feel per personally spoken to mm -hmm. and the finding that accessible on sort of a broad mainstream basis is, is harder and harder and so you're i think you'll continue to see sort of little little spots of talent breaking off and doing their own thing to, to keep their own um, visibility and, and, and uh, draw on their audiences. Absolutely. It'll, it'll be but without, without the bureaucracy that you're speaking of. I think that's very astute observation. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, no, they're a great company and they're obviously, you know, they've been the power player within the industry for a long time and they have like amazing smart people. I just could see how, 
you know, when you can't move as fast, especially in like the digital realm, you know, it, it could be a problem. So we'll see what happens. They're moving on to their ESPN plus and, and moving towards streaming and we'll, we'll see what they do. But um, I wanted to ask, so what are some traits, some skills, some things that people should work on that want to work in the entertainment space, you know, the sports or the film space? And um, what do you think people should be doing that want to break in? Um, well, first and foremost, I think that they should know why they're passionate about it um, and be able to articulate that. I think that there is an element of knowing you got to put in the work that you're not going to immediately be the superstar or the boss or the knowing that you have that like where you fit into the hierarchy and being willing to um, dig in and do the work. Um, I think that's really a mentality that is not as widespread as it could be currently. Um, I think I would highly recommend focusing on attention to detail, being somebody who notices what what's missing um, and being additive to the mix. Um, what else do I advise people? Yeah, I mean, going back to the thing I said about relationships, you know, learn how to learn how to connect people in a non-transactional way, understand why it might be valuable to somebody else more than valuable to you and, and lean into that. Awesome. Thank one thing, you. One thing at a time. Yeah, absolutely. So as a woman in the space and, and, you know, being, having the, had the successes you, you've accomplished in your career, what was it like working as a woman in, in the space, especially in sports where you tend to see traditionally like a lot of like, you know, I don't know, a lot of discrimination towards women in the sports space. So for like, Women that, that want to work in sports business or in sports media or in sports PR, what kind of advice would you give them to all the young women out there listening in terms of breaking into the space and succeeding and overcoming those hurdles that quite frankly shouldn't be there, but might actually be there, you know? Uh, so that's a little complicated. I think frankly, you know, I personally get very frustrated with this, sort of ghettoization of women in blank, mm -hmm. um, whether it's entertainment or sports. I think that um, as a woman, I don't want to have to lead with the fact that I'm a woman or think about that. I think I just want to be good and let that represent. Um, and that's the advice I give people is, is uh, you don't have to only talk to women about things and you don't have to be an expert on being a woman. And um, you, you know, there is an element to just doing well, showing up and being good at what you do um, that should let, should and, and can speak for itself. I think part of the challenge, and this is, um, this is not a knock on you, Alex, but I, I think, you know, one thing for you to keep in mind, and I think is sort of an interesting thought starter, is that, you know, I, I suspect that when you have men on this podcast, you don't ask them what it's like to be a man in sports. Sure, for sure. Right. So, so, so women are faced with those kinds of questions, which is um, understandable, but I think the reality is, is that I am not somebody who ascribes to the, I am a woman in sports. I am just a woman and I'm in sports. And so I, you know, and when I was programming for South by Sports, I, I had a really strong point of view on this and it's not popular. It's not, as, it's not as widespread as I think it should be. You know, a lot of women... I think find a lot of value in the community and in the association um, and in the sort of 
shared support of each other to, to help bring other people, you know, step up, which I agree. I, and I do my best to, to help people. But um, I think when you feature women in a way, or you, re you, you ask a woman to just be representative about being a woman, mm -hmm. you're limiting their opportunities. Sure. So when you ask people to talk about the digital media landscape and they're just a woman speaking about the digital media landscape, that speaks for itself in a way that um, it isn't about what is it like being a woman in the digital media landscape. Absolutely. I, I love that perspective and, and thank you for that because it makes me more knowledgeable and it makes me feel more educated on the topic, right? And I definitely didn't, didn't mean to offend you or ask it in that story. No, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not offended. I, I think I pointed out because it really, people don't realize, you know, it's like you're, you're doing what you think you, you, you know, your intentions are, are, are beautiful. And, you know, I think I have female students in my class asking the same questions. So the point is like, let's break out of the mentality of like, why aren't you asking the men about how they help women in sports get ahead? Why is it on the women? Absolutely. No, I, I love that perspective. And like you said, you know, a woman speaking about, you know, those topics just speaks for itself anyways. You know, you're, you're, a woman and you don't have to categorize as like a woman in sports. So I love that. And um, okay. yeah, no, I, I think like you said, I think I, I don't like it either. Like you said, the ghettoization, I've actually never heard it phrased that way, but I think that's, that's, that's very true. Like the ghettoization of, of women in any industry or in sports. I don't think it should be like that. And yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your perspective. Cause like I said, I just, sure. I just learned a lot and probably wouldn't phrase it like that again in the future, you know, like the, the question. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, I was going to ask any, any last thoughts of it for anyone, you know, trying to break into the sports industry or just their careers in general, what they should do or how they should play. It? I mean, I think people just need to do their homework. You know, I think, I think wanting to work in sports, quote unquote, is such a broad thing. So trying to do your work and your homework and understanding and learning how things fit together or Started, you know, what a great starting place would be, you know, sports in particular is an industry that is very segmented by sport and by level. So you can't go work in sports so much. You'd have to go work in basketball or work in, um, in football or work in college sports or work in professional sports. So there's, there's lanes to understand. Um, and within that, obviously, different disciplines. So I think people really you know, when I'm hiring or when I've hired previously, you know, the thing that I look for is um, somebody who is interested in, in a specific thing and, and, and gets excited by and ha shows some awareness of the context of the thing and is not just sort of more broadly like just trying to, you know, do something without purpose. For sure, for sure. Can you elaborate a little bit more about like specific setting and like um, just kind of narrowing in per se? Yeah, so like, okay, you want to, let's say you want to work in basketball. Okay. Well, do you, you know, you want to work in a front office. Well, do you understand how the front office fits into the context of working with a league or working um, in market or what's the lane that you want to be in? Is it, you want to work on the biz op side? Do you want to work on the player development side? Do you want to work in marketing? Do you want to work in community engagement? So having a sense of where you want to fit into that landscape and also a sense of where that organization or type of organization fits into the larger whole will help you be smarter about what kind of work you pursue and then what you can take away once you're in there. For sure, for sure. So definitely multiple different lanes you can work in within a front office or a league, 
or a team or whatever the case may be that people should narrow in on, which is going to add value to them, you know, in terms of like, as opposed to just taking a more broad approach, like as opposed to, I want to work in sports. This is what I'd like to do within sports, within a league or a team. Or a I think that helps. I mean, I think if you have broad interests, that's fine, but I think you have to start somewhere. And I think starting somewhere as you search, starting somewhere as an area that you dive into and put the work into as you're applying for jobs, is going to be helpful because you're going to represent a lot better and more, you know, uniquely in those interviews because you're going to have some specific information to talk about versus I'm just an entry level person. I just want to work in sports. I just want to work for front office. I'll take any job I get. You can say that. And you can also say, but what I'd really love to do is start in this division. And here's why. For sure. Awesome. Well, this was fun, Rebecca. Thank you so much for yeah, taking Alex. time out of your schedule to do it. It was awesome getting to My talk pleasure. with you. Learned a lot, and, and I'm sure people who listen are going to take away a lot as well. It was awesome. We'll see. <laughs> I hope so. Well, I'm honored. Honored that you would ask me to participate. I hope I hope I Absolutely. said some helpful, interesting things. Absolutely. Um, yeah. No, this was awesome, and and thank you so much for being on. It's an honor to have you on. You know. Don't be such a smart up.